Colossians 1, verse 21. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So we'll pause there and we'll flip over now to 1 Peter 1. Just want to make sure that we all understand that we're in 1 Peter today, but we're framing this with what we've been learning in the book of Colossians. So 1 Peter 1, and I'll start reading from verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the testing, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Amen. Now we've been focusing our attention for the last couple of weeks on that conditional clause in Colossians 1.23 that at first glance seemed to indicate that you could possibly lose your salvation if you didn't continue in the faith. Over the last few weeks, we asked and answered the question, uh, is it true that once you're saved, once you're truly saved, you are always saved? And without re-preaching the last two sermons, we can say that if we understand salvation correctly, then yes, once we're saved, we're always saved. Well, how do we know this? Well, we notice this by looking more closely at the parable of the sower. We notice this from listening to the words of Christ when he said in John 10 that no one will snatch them from my hand or from the Father's hand. Uh, we learn this from the combination of the doctrine of divine election and the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, that the God who authored our faith is the God who will finish our faith. And then fourthly, we learn this from the three verb tenses describing salvation. We are saved from the penalty of sin, we are being saved from the power of sin, and we will be saved from the presence of sin 
this whole idea of these doctrines of justification, sanctification, and glorification. And the insert I had last week is actually in your bulletin again today uh, with some new things on the other side. So again, don't want to re-preach those again. And if you have any further questions, I encourage you to go back and listen to those two sermons. That'll help you get caught up. Those who God calls in eternity past are promised to be kept into eternity future, which means that we will continue to be stable and steadfast without shifting from the hope of the gospel. So yes, once we are saved, we are always saved. You will preserve to the end. God will preserve you until the day of Christ Jesus. We know from Hebrews 12 that some of us, maybe most of us in this room, at some point we stumble and bumble along the way. Some even appear to defect from the faith for a season or longer and may even look like an unbeliever. But those, those who are truly in Christ, like an earthly father, but who's perfect and righteous in all things, God will discipline and chastise those who are his to bring his children back to him, back to a right relationship with him. And he will be sure that all of his children make it or endure to the end. And we thank God for that. As we continue and finish this little sidebar of like a three-part mini-series, you're going to see even more clearly today from 1 Peter how amazing and how precious salvation really is. As I said last week, when you first became a Christian, you really didn't know everything that happened to you. We don't really know all the things that, in a sense, happened behind the curtain of heaven uh, in order for us to become Christians. But over time, over time, as you're faithful uh, to attend the local church, be part of a local body, to, to hear God's word preached, to, to, to come and sing God's word and pray God's word and worship with other believers, over time, you, you, you learn more and more about what happened to you from the Word of God when you became a believing Christian. And when you understand how active God was to bring you to faith in Him, how He and He alone took the initiative to bring you to Him and save you, then you will pause and give glory and praise and honor to the only one who can truly save and the only one who can truly save forever. This idea of growing and learning uh, what happened to you at salvation is really similar to, to those of us who, as we've raised our children, they begin asking questions about reproduction and childbirth and pregnancy. And uh, most of us as parents uh, have had that conversation when we had to have what we called in our house, quote, the talk uh, about where babies come from and how they're made. And you know, when you talk to your eight-year-old, you try to be as vague as possible as they ask questions. And by the time our kids are in their teenage years, then you answer the questions with a little more clarity. But quite honestly, uh, once we're married and we go through the process is when we understand even more fully. And the whole process of, of reproduction and childbirth and labor and delivery is amazing that God, in fact... Uh, uses these things for his glory to continue uh, the human race in a sense. It's an amazing process. Learning about physical birth is a process that we learn about over time, and learning about our spiritual rebirth is a process that we learn as well from the Word of God. So from 1 Peter 1, though I read through verse 9, we'll probably stop at verse 5, 
And again, as I walk through this, you will see even more clearly how you are eternally saved, eternally secure, and will preserve to the very end. There's so much in this passage, but I'm going to limit it to three points. One, salvation is sure, and we are eternally secure because of the work of the Holy Trinity. That'll be number one. Secondly, our salvation is sure and eternally secure because our inheritance is eternal in heaven. And thirdly, salvation is sure and eternally secure because believers are guarded by the power of God Almighty. So the Trinity and eternal inheritance and the power of God is what makes sure that we keeps us to the very, very end. Now, when I use the word Trinity, that alone causes a pause to give some explanation. The Trinity is a mystery to us. We cannot fully understand it. We can make statements about it from Scripture. We can declare what's true from Scripture. But to fully understand, like all the doctrines of God, uh, is beyond our finite minds. We, as believers, are what we would call monotheists. We believe in one God. We believe God is one. But the one God that the Bible declares to exist has revealed himself to us in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In your bulletin on one side of the insert, I have the definition, uh, partial definition of the Trinity from the 1689 London Baptist Confession that we hold to as a church. Uh, it states this, these three having the same substance, power, and eternity each having the whole divine essence, without this essence being divided. All three are infinite, without beginning, and are therefore only one God. Yet these three are distinguished by several distinctive characteristics and personal relations. Now, I know that's a mouthful, but we're going to focus our attention on that last phrase. These three are distinguished by several distinctive characteristics and personal relations. What that means is that the three persons in the Godhead, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, though co-equal and co-eternal, have different roles and different functions, and we see this most clearly in salvation and or redemption. And the reason why this is so important is so we will see that the Father, Son, and the Spirit all have a part in saving you all have a part in bringing you from darkness to light. They all have a part in bringing you out of death into life. It took a divine effort by the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, an effort that could never be accomplished without all three. And you cannot, we cannot save ourselves. You see, our condition is not that we're kind of bad and need to be a little bit better so we just need a little bit of Jesus in our hearts to help us. We just need to do a few more good things to offset the few bad things. No, our condition as depraved sinners is far worse than that. The sin and the depravity that we're born with is such that there's nothing that we can do to resolve our alienation from God. In fact, Romans 3 reminds us that we don't even want to resolve our alienation from God. There's none who seek God. Romans 5, we're told that we're God's enemies. In Ephesians 2, we're told that we're dead in our sins. So for a person to go from darkness to light, 
for a person to go from death to life, for a person to go from being God's enemy to being accepted by him, there is a, a miracle, a miracle that takes place because of the Father, Son, and the Spirit working to bring that sinner to salvation. You know, the reason why all angels in heaven rejoice when one sinner repents is precisely because of the miraculous work in the heart of a sinner to bring him into God's kingdom. They are rejoicing and giving glory to God Almighty for the work of salvation that the Trinity participates in. And because of this miracle, you can never claim that you worked your way to heaven. You can never claim that you deserve forgiveness. You can never claim that you did enough good things for God to accept you. No, all of your life you will give praise and glory and honor to the King Eternal, the only wise God, immortal and invisible. So similar to last week, I need to encourage you to, to sit up straight and stay awake, make sure your neighbor's awake. This is going to be a little more instructional, but I hope and pray tremendously helpful as we, as we see the eternal saving power of God. I want you to notice first in 1 Peter 1, the work of the Trinity. As we examine this, you will see, and I put this in your bulletin as well, the Father calls, He elects, and He chooses us as the administrator of our salvation. The Son suffers, dies, and rises again, and He's the one who accomplishes our salvation. And the Holy Spirit regenerates, sanctifies, and convicts. He is the one who applies salvation. And this work of the Trinity in redemption is actually stated two different times fully in just two verses here in 1 Peter 1. Look first of all at the way that God has mentioned. I'll start reading from verse 1 again. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now listen carefully. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. In verse 2, we first see the Father accomplishing salvation by electing these men and women, boys and girls, who have been exiled from their country, and their election is according to His foreknowledge, His foreordination, his predetermined plan. This is the Father carrying out His will or directing His purpose and plan by electing or choosing some for salvation. Well, how does this take place? The first goes on through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. The sanctifying work of the Spirit is applying salvation to those who God has elected or chosen. And it's the Spirit's work to make them holy and blameless and above reproach. And we know it'll continue because Peter says it's for obedience to Jesus Christ. This is the Spirit applying salvation by sanctifying individuals and continuing to aid them as they walk in obedience. Then the reference to Jesus Christ is the Son accomplishing salvation. Well, how does he do that? Salvation's accomplished when those God has called are, quote, sprinkled with his blood. It's an obvious reference to the suffering and the death of Christ. 
All through the Old Testament, we know that bulls and rams and lambs and goats were, were sacrificed and sprinkled on individuals for cleansing. And here, it's the precious blood of Christ through his one-time sacrifice that cleanses sinners. Christ's death is what accomplishes our salvation. So again, do you see that just in this one verse, this one verse shows the work of the Father, the work of the Son, the work of the Spirit. The Father choosing, the Son suffering and dying, and the Spirit making us holy. All three persons in the Godhead are part of your salvation, if indeed you're a believing Christian this morning. Now to make sure we get it, to make sure we understand it, Peter starts all over again in verse 3 and literally restates the exact same thing. How all three parts of the Trinity work in redemption. Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Do you see the Father administering salvation? Do you look at him carrying out his plan? What does he do that is according to his mercy? He causes us to be born again. If you are born again, if you're made new in Christ, it's not because you earned it. It's not because you deserve it. It's not because you merited it. It's because the Father caused it. He's the cause. He's the one who planned it. He's the one who purposed it. He is the one who administrates or is the administer of our salvation. And through whom is our redemption accomplished? Notice the last phrase. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. In verse 2, we saw the reference to his shed blood. Here the reference is to his death and resurrection. And they worked hand in hand, don't they? Jesus accomplishes our salvation by dying as a substitute and subsequently being raised to new life. Now the name of the Holy Spirit is not here. But the phrase has caused us to be born again to a living hope is clearly a reference to the Spirit in regards to our salvation. We know this for sure because of the conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus in John chapter 3, when Jesus described being born again as a work of the Spirit of God. God the Father causes us to be born again through the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. The Spirit applies salvation to those the Father chooses. So similar to verse 2, in verse 3, we also see the Father, the Son, and the Spirit working in the lives of individuals to save them, to redeem them, to bring them to faith in Christ. The Father administrating, the Son accomplishing, and the Spirit applying salvation. Beloved, salvation is miraculous. If you're becoming a Christian, it's as miraculous as a six-day creation. The Trinity was involved in Genesis 1 and 2, creating the universe and creating man and woman. It's as miraculous as the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit were all involved in raising Christ from the dead. Acts 2 tells us that God raised Jesus from the dead. John 2, Jesus said, I raised myself from the dead. And in, and in Romans 8, Paul states, the Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. It takes the Trinitarian power of God to bring a rebellious sinner out of darkness into his marvelous light and to raise us up 
out of our dead, rebellious condition, to transfer us into the kingdom of his beloved son. Now, we've already spent quite a bit of time last week looking at the Father and his divine sovereign election before the foundation of the world as the administrator of our salvation. We've already seen on more than one occasion how the Son accomplishes salvation through his life, death, and his resurrection. I want to spend our time on how the Holy Spirit applies salvation. So again, make sure you're awake, make sure your neighbor's awake. Uh, We're going a little detailed today, but this is really important and we need to all get this. Verse 2 mentions the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ. Verse 3 states, according to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope. I want to start with verse 3. And beloved, this is a very full sentence. It gives us God's loving motivation for his calling us to himself. It's because of his mercy. And since it's because of his mercy and his mercy alone, there are no grounds for us being born again by our own good works. The word mercy I put in your bulletin as well. It means compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone whom it's within one's power to punish or harm. It is clearly within God's power to punish or harm us because of our sin. And it's what we deserve. And instead of giving us what we do deserve, he gives us what we do not deserve. He gives us mercy. Not for anything we've done, not because we've earned his mercy, he gives it freely. And it's the reason why he causes us to be born again. And notice too, we're born again to a living hope which confirms that prior to being born again, two things are true. One, prior to our salvation, we are not living. We are dead. And two, prior to our salvation, we have no hope. God causing us to be born again is working in and through us to bring us out of our dead condition and out of our hopeless state to a place where there is life and there is hope. Let me just ask you this morning, do you really know what life really is? And do you have hope? As the hymn states, hope for today and bright hope for tomorrow because of his faithfulness. As we look around our nation and our world right now, things look as bleak as they've ever been, at least in our lifetime. And it does remind me of our catechism question. What is our only hope? In life and death, beloved, the world needs to know the answer because this is the only answer that we can ever give. Our only hope in life and death is that we are not our own, but belong, body and soul, both in life and death, to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's the same answer we're learning in the song we've been singing this month. That, 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 that what is our hope in life and death? Christ alone, Christ alone. What is our only confidence, our only confidence that our souls belong to him? Beloved, he who has the Son has life, both life in this world and the promise of eternal life. And John 3, 36 goes on to say that he who does not have the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. 
Part of the reason why there's so much angst in regards to COVID and the issues today of race and social justice and the coming election is for those who do not know Christ. This is all they have. And they have to do all they can to guard and keep and make their 60 or 70 years a little bit better on this sin-cursed planet. And, and they think that this is life. This is not life. Life is in the sun. He is life. He's our only hope in life and death. And the process of our souls belonging to him begins with him causing us to be born again. Because we do not belong to him until we're born into his family. So again, we're going to put our thinking caps back on and walk through what that means. The word or phrase to be born again, and again, this is in your bulletin. I hope these are helpful. You can take this home with you. It means to experience a complete change in one's way of life to what it should be with the implication of, of a return to a former state or relation. Packer defines it as the concept is of God renovating the heart, the core of a person's being, by implanting a new principle of desire, purpose, and action. A dispositional dynamic that finds expression in positive response to the gospel and it's Christ. That is such a critical part of the process of salvation. And it's a missing part as well. It's a mysterious part that can con cause confusion if not explained properly. So even as I'm preaching this morning, if you'll just pray silently for me. Because the more we understand about our salvation, the more we will give praise and glory to God for bringing us into his kingdom. So we want to make sure and get this right. Since a person, all of us, at birth, are dead in our sin, and since in us all there dwelleth no good thing, and since there's none righteous, not one, it is impossible for a dead man or a dead woman to decide to trust Jesus Christ for salvation. Dead men cannot raise themselves to life. They need something outside of themselves to come to life. They need to be born again. Sometimes it's stated they need to be regenerated. And 1 Peter 1 states that God causes us to be born again. If you glance over at verse 23, you'll see that, that part of the process is that God uses the living and abiding word of God. It's scripture that God uses us to cause us to be born again. In verse 23, he says, Since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. God uses the scriptures to make us alive. He takes us out of our dead condition. He takes away our stony, unbelieving heart, and he gives us a heart that's pliable and teachable and soft, as Packer states, so we can respond to him. The way Packer explained that this is, that God renovates or rejuvenates our heart, changes our disposition toward God. And God had to do that. Because our previous disposition toward God is that we wanted nothing to do with him. And it moves us to respond to the good news about Jesus. It's the work of the Holy Spirit that causes us to be born again that coincides with the Father administrating our salvation and redemption through his sovereign election. The Father elects us and causes us to be born again by the Holy Spirit. Everyone still with me? Okay. 
Turn to Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel 36. We do not turn to our Old Testament often enough to confirm and affirm New Testament truth. But this one's really important. I'm going to read from verse 25, and I'm not going to take the time to turn there. But in John 3, when Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus, and he says, Unless you are born again or born of the Spirit, you will not see the kingdom of God. Most commentators believe that Jesus is referring to these verses in Ezekiel in his discussion with Nicodemus. Ezekiel is prophesying about a time in the future when the Holy Spirit will change a man or a woman from the inside out, making them new creatures, cleansing them from their sin, and giving them a new heart as the Holy Spirit works in and through them. He writes in Ezekiel 36, verse 25, I will, this is God speaking, sprinkle clean water on you, and you'll be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This is New Testament language of being born again. And similar to you having nothing to do with your first physical birth, you have nothing to do with your second, your rebirth, your spiritual birth. As 1 Peter 1 states, God causes a person to be born again. God does the work in the human heart by replacing their heart of stone and giving them a heart of flesh. And it's this new heart, this new creation, this new man that now, now has the ability to believe the good news about Jesus and then to walk in God's statutes and obey his word. Now, how could you possibly have understood all of that when you became a Christian? How could you possibly have understood the whole process of childbirth until you're more fully mature? Even now, even now as I explain it, it's still really, really difficult to grasp. In regards to regeneration or being born again, there's a group of theologians in the 1600s that were defending the faith. They wrote this, and I put this in your bulletin. Your bulletin is very full today. This is a great quote. The manner of this operation cannot be fully comprehended by believers in this life, notwithstanding which they rest satisfied with knowing and experiencing that by this grace of God they are enabled to believe with a heart and love the Savior. I'm so glad that statement exists. We cannot fully comprehend the work of the Spirit in the life of a person. We cannot fully understand how, how I had no interest in God, no interest in His Word, no interest in His church, no interest in His Christ. Yet the day comes when I heard the Word of God and God literally woke me out of my slumber, raised me out of my dead condition. And because of now what I've learned from God's Word, I know now that He regenerated me. He caused me to be born again to a living hope, and He enabled me to believe and have faith that Christ died for my sin. And He's done that to some of you as well. This is what Peter's referring to in 1 Peter 3. It is entirely a work of God. When you back up a verse to verse 2 of 1 Peter 1, where Peter's stating that these exiles are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. 
This reference is not just to the regeneration part of salvation. Rather, it's a reference to the full and complete work in the life of a person from the beginning to the very, very end. The Spirit's work in accomplishing salvation or redemption begins at the point of regeneration, but it's the Spirit's job. It's the Spirit's job to make sure that you, that you make it to the end, that you arrive safely home and stand before God, the God who elected you and chose you and redeemed you. So when Peter uses the phrase, in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ, he's talking about what we went over last week, this, this idea of being sanctified, this idea of being saved from the presence of sin, this idea of continuing and being made holy, continuing in the faith until we see Christ face to face. Our salvation is not true salvation unless we are walking in obedience to Jesus Christ. And that starts with the work of the Spirit in regeneration and continues throughout our lives as the Spirit works in and through us to make us what we already are in Christ. So our salvation is secure. We will preserve to the end and we will continue in the faith because our omnipotent Father is the administrator. He, our omnipotent Son accomplished salvation and the omnipotent Holy Spirit applies salvation. God authored our faith, he will finish our faith. That's the Trinity. Now notice that along with security of our salvation being grounded in the Trinity, it's also sure because of our inheritance that's kept in heaven and is eternal. Look at verse 4 of 1 Peter 1. We are born again or made new in Christ and now have, quote, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Confirms again that God's the author of our salvation. Because inheritances, even in the temporal world, have nothing to do with the person receiving the inheritance, but everything to do with the one who is giving the inheritance. The one with the resources to give the inheritance can give that inheritance to whoever they choose. In this case, because you've been born again, born from above into the family of God, you now qualify for this eternal inheritance that you previously did not qualify for because you're all part of the family of God if you're in Christ. And this inheritance is yours because you're in the family of God and it's so incredibly unique that Peter describes it in a, in a marvelous way. Your inheritance is imperishable. Your inheritance is undefiled. Your inheritance is unfading. And your inheritance is kept in heaven for you. Every so often you read about individuals who blow through or squander an inheritance literally overnight. Um, but the inheritance that we have as born-again members of God's family, it's, it's imperishable. It'll never decay. It'll never wear out. It's undefiled. It's pure. It's not affected by sin. It's unfading. It's never any less than it is right now. In a million years, it will have the same value as the first day you received it. And it's kept in heaven, which means it's absolutely safe. Never be lost. Kept in a vault in heaven. Who's going to try to come and steal it? The inheritance of the Christian is an eternity with Christ where there's no more tears, <clears throat> no more sorrow, 
No more pain. No more cancer. No more sin. And no more death. There's not anything on this world that the world offers that is remotely close to what we are given as our inheritance with the saints. And it's personal, isn't it? Peter says it's for you. You know, most inheritances, even, even big inheritances, they divide them among the members or they divide it among charities and everyone gets a slice of the pie until it runs out. But this imperishable and undefiled and unfading inheritance is for you. And it's for you. And it's for you. And we all get 100% of the entire inheritance. Not a slice of it. God gives every one of His children all of His good gifts because of the lovely death or the, of His Son and by the power of His Spirit. Now we don't fully realize it until we die. We refer to this at times that it is something we have already, but it's not in our full possession yet. It's ours, it belongs to us, but it's not fully realized until we're in our heavenly home. But notice verse 5. Thirdly, that salvation is sure and eternally secure because believers are guarded by the power of Almighty God. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. The power by which God guards His children is a military term that can mean it can mean that we are simultaneously being guarded or kept from the external attack of the enemy. At the same time, we're also guarding from, a, from escaping should the enemy begin to terrify us. And the verb tense that's used here has the idea of guarding that has begun and is continual. So we're guarded by God from enemy attack and we're kept by God when we want to make a run for it. He keeps us on both ends because we're His. We're kept by His power. And if God is for us, you fill in the blank. Who can be against us? And don't muss that little but powerful phrase, through faith. Through faith. Up until now, you may have been wondering, well, how does faith fit with being born again? Where it fits is that after God regenerates your hard, stony heart and gives you a heart of flesh, this gives you the ability to trust Christ and put your faith in Him. This gives you the ability to believe. This gives you the, the desire to come to Christ, believing He died for you. This goes back to the fact that your inheritance is personal. It is for you. But you have to exercise faith or respond to the call of God to understand and receive your inheritance. So when you hear the truth from God's Word, that you are a great sinner, and you're in need of a great Savior, you will respond to the call to come. You will repent or turn from your sin and trust Christ to save you. Faith is a gift of God, and you're responsible for exercising your faith in Christ. And He gives you the ability to believe when He gives you a new heart. So when you believe, as we've said before, the, the righteousness of Christ is credited to your account through faith. And it's a faith that you would never have had 
apart from God causing you to be born again by His Spirit. So you're kept by God's power through the faith that has been given to you for a salvation that will be fully revealed when you die and are with Him forever. Beloved, salvation is miraculous. Beginning in eternity past, God electing some to be His, the administrator of our salvation, His beloved Son comes to the earth He created, lives and walks among His creation, suffers a cruel death, dies, rises again, and accomplishes salvation. And the Spirit regenerating and sanctifying and applying salvation. And through this process, those who believe are given an imperishable, undefiled, unfading, eternal inheritance that's kept in heaven. And those who are believers are kept and guarded by the omnipotent power of God. And if indeed you're a believing Christian this morning, I hope this just gives you a better understanding of of what Jesus said is so true that no one, no one can snatch them from my hand. And no one, and my Father, who is greater than all, No one can snatch him from the Father's hand. And I pray that knowing that he chose you according to his mercy will humble you and cause you to live with grateful joy over the wonder of him bringing into his kingdom. More than anything else, what salvation does should cause us to have a palpable humility. You have to be able to look at this and say, Why me? Why me? It's because of Him. And if you're in Christ this morning, when we close in song, I hope and pray that you can sing Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me with absolute full voice. And if you're not in Christ this morning, if you don't have hope in life and death, if you're not sure you belong to Jesus, if you're unsure of your faith this morning, if you're not confident you'll be part of this glorious inheritance, then in your seat you can respond to the Spirit's working in your soul to put your faith in Christ to save you. Confess Him before men. Get baptized. And then you too will be singing Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Let's pray.